Well, I am continuing in our studies of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and tonight we come to Of the Fall, Sin, and Judgment. So well, we've done the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures, we've done uh, the doctrine of God and the Trinity, we've done creation, we've done providence, we did the eternal decree, and uh, having done creation, uh, we now deal with the great problem of our world, which is mankind's fall into sin. Uh, here's the opening statement, paragraph one of chapter uh, of chapter six of the confession uh, of the fall of man. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin, God was pleased, according to His wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purpose to order it to His own glory. That is the fall. Uh, I think I got a, I got a bigger font. It's slightly busy, but it's a bigger font today. I, I, I said no font size 14. I got a few size 15s, but mostly it's 16 and up. Well, this answers the great question. Uh, what's wrong with our world? And the, the, the doctrine of the fall is so important because how you, if you're any, any mathematician will know, how you set up the equation determines the answer. And what is how we define the problem is going to structure how we answer that problem in Christianity. And according to the Bible, the problem with our world is at a certain point in time after creation, our first parents fell into sin. And that is the problem with our world. Everything after it uh, is, is a response to that. And so how did evil enter the creation? What is wrong? We live in a good world. That's broken. That's obvious. Uh, and the breaking came by the fall into sin. Now, by the way, the key chapter for this is Genesis chapter 3. This is one of the reasons why we can't throw away the biblical teaching of creation. We can't throw away the early chapters of the Bible because all we lose is the entirety of our faith. I mean, if there's, if there's evolution, then there is no Adam. Or if there is an Adam, it's not the same as the biblical Adam. And, and the very way we structure the problem, the way the Bible structures the problem, becomes corrupted. Uh, the first sin, notice, involved rejecting the authority of God in violating his express pro- prohibition. Uh, going back to, oops, oh, the, okay, uh-oh, he doesn't have the clicker tonight. Okay, there we go. Um, our first parents sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. And so what's going on with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, God puts them in the garden. He gives them this garden of delights. They don't have to work. They just pluck their food off the, off the tree. And it's the beauty that's described in Genesis 2 of the garden. But he says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you surely will die. Genesis 2, 17 and 18. The Lord is establishing his authority. The creature must live in, in submission and obedience to the authority of the creator. And so the first sin... Could you all turn off? That's a spam. I'll turn it... There we go. I'll, I'll turn my phone off. Whoever his phone it is. Uh, I was speaking at a conference once when that happened. That was, that was embarrassing. One time I was away in a different time zone, and I called Sharon on a Sunday morning. We were having communion here, and she's sitting up front 
her phone goes off during communion because the pastor is calling her. Anyway, sorry about that. Uh, but they rejected the authority of God. And he, uh, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I, I think it's right. I think I mentioned this in, in one of the re- previous ones. There's no reason to think there's something particular about the tree. The Lord, I mean, what was it? You ate a tree, it gave you knowledge of good and evil. No, I don't think that's what's going on. God labels it by his word. He says that's what this tree is going to represent. And he's requiring them to accept the authority of his word. And the question is, how do I know what's right and wrong? This is the huge issue today. How do we determine right and wrong today? It's my feelings. It's what, I, what, what makes me feel it's our therapeutic deism. What makes, what, what's therapeutic to me is. And the Bible says, no, no, no. Right and wrong. Truth and non-truth is not determined by the creature in his experience or her experience. It's determined by the creator as expressed by his word. And that, that, by the way, that's the massive issue. You take a think of transgenderism today. I feel that I'm a woman. I feel that I'm a man. No, no. Truth is not found in how we feel. It's not in our experiences. Truth is found in God and in his word. And that right at the beginning... God is demanding that and emphasizing that. And so the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil spoke to God as the source of truth and morality. What is sin? Sin is what the Bible says is sin. Now, the Bible often explains it. There's often, usually there's a con, we understand how it works. But what makes it sin is that God's word declares it to be sin. It's God's character as expressed by his word. God is the epistemic center of all things. The source of our knowledge is God and not in our feelings, our choosings, and our experiencing. How relevant is the Garden of Eden to the times in which we're living? Now, we're told that Satan beguiled them and deceived them. And so sin comes about by the agency, the the, the fall of man comes about by the agency of the serpent. And the Westminster Divines, I think very rightly, although there was a literal serpent, it's, it's, the Bible's very clear, it's Satan, either in the guise of the serpent or working through the serpent, who is beguiling them and tempting them. Now, it is a bit of a conundrum. Uh, how do you tempt someone who's not a sinner? Adam and Eve are, are not yet fallen prior to them sinning. Uh, what are you latching on in them if they don't have a corrupt nature. There is some mystery to that, I have to confess. But I think the emphasis here is on the beguiling nature of it. Satan, he, he tricks is not the right word. He beguiles them. He, he, he causes them to be distorted in their thinking, and he does so by speaking lies. It's also very profound. The, 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 the whole manner in which the fall came about is how sin operates today. It creates confusion. It, it creates wrong desires by the, by the ministry of the false word, of the half-truth, of the lie. One thing the confession shows from the Bible is that sin originates in, in, in fallen angels. Prior to the fall of man, there's the fall of the angels. Satan is a angel who's fallen. And you go, well, how did they fall? You know, it did not please the Lord to tell us. And we, I, 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 this is why most of the Christian literature about the fall of the angels is in novels. And I find it unhelpful 
for us to, here's how I think it happened. I have no idea how it happened. The Bible gives us extremely little. Uh, the pride aspect, we're, that, we're told about that with Satan. But sin originates in the fall of the angels. And Donald McLeod puts it this way. What Satan did was he sowed the seed of suspicion with Eve. Uh, did God say you may not eat of any of the trees of the garden? What God actually said, you know, was you may, you may eat of any of the trees in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan comes along and says, did God really say? Notice how he's cha- challenging God as a trustworthy source of, of truth and, 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 and goodness. Uh, did, did God really say you may not eat of any of the trees of the garden? So he, he, he lies to her in, in a way that, that he's intentionally sowing the seed of suspicion. He seeds, sells a seed of doubt. No, and, and Eve says, no, we may eat of any of the trees, but except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day that we eat of it, we will surely die. But you will not surely die, he said. And so he works doubt in her. And then the seed of ungodly ambition. No, what God, what's happening is God doesn't want you to eat of it because if you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so he beguiles her. Uh, with doubt, with suspicion, with... Uh, what well, you see with, with, with the serpent, it, it's, it's the false word creating sinful desires where they didn't even exist there. Um, now, that makes the essential point that what we open our ears to, what influences we open our hearts to, is going to have a huge effect on us. Uh, it's it's going to be important for the raising of our children. Uh, we, we cannot keep our children or ourselves from interacting with unbelief. The Bible doesn't tell us never to interact with unbelief. But we are not to open our hearts to the false messages. Our, our whole look, look at how uh, look at how television has changed America in the last fifty years. And and there's you know you think of the early sitcoms. Uh, Archie Bunker and All in the Family and, and the way that, uh, in terms of moral changes, that they, they would make the, the person who was sinning would be an attractive person. And then the Christians, usually a mean person who's a bad neighbor and nobody likes them. And, and by, by suggestion and, and by creating a false context, a very tilted one, the media has succeeded in changing America vastly. Well, it's not unlike Satan, who, who creates a false perception based upon the manipulative false word. Oh, how we need to be careful. And I, you know, I'm going to quote Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Certainly with our children, we must guard the influences going through their ears and their eyes and into their hearts. But you know what? It's not just our, it's not just my children, it's my parents' children, by which I mean me. <laughs> and we are to guard the heart by the ears and the eyes. Now again, we, we can't, in fact, I was talking to somebody recently about uh, here, I think last Wednesday night, about uh, the public pornography. You know, we, we live in a publicly pornographic world. And when my boys were like in middle school, I once, I had, on more than one occasion, I took them to the Haywood Mall intentionally to walk down the Victoria's Secret aisle to practice with them 
turning our eyes away. And we would walk down the aisle and I'd say, okay, Matthew, you make the call. When are we going to turn our eyes? And ten steps, Dad, we're going to turn our eyes. And we're going we're to we're make a covenant with our eyes. And we're going to learn the practice of turning away from evil. And we'd walk down the Victoria's Secret. And I know they make great jammies, but the, the ads are bad, you know. Uh, but, uh, and we must practice responding to a world of evil with what comes, what, what hits our ears, what hits our eyes. We must govern them. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Kevin DeYoung, who's a friend of ours, went on a, a rant over Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones was the uber popular HBO fantasy series that, uh, was pornographic. And, uh, and he pointed out how met what a high percentage of young Christians confessed to watching Game of Thrones. And he was right. And you can, I think you can probably find out, you Google Kevin DeYoung rant Game of Thrones. He's absolutely right. A Christian should not be, what are you doing? Oh, we're going to go home. We're going to watch the pornographic. Well, why? Because everybody's doing it. Everybody, well, well, oh. Satan wants to give us, he wants to come through our eyes and through our ears. He wants to, to corrupt us and beguile us and tempt us. And Christians must fight against that. And we must be wise. We, and there will be many times when we will say we're not going to participate in this or that. Certainly we should not be watching sinful things on TV or, or what. I, I, you, you get my message. What we listened to, it was the listening to the lie, the false word, energized even in our previously sinless parents. Isn't that fat? Now, see, you and I are not them. We are not sinless. Oh, no. If Adam and Eve couldn't afford to be exposed to the, to the deceit of the false word, and, and, of the, and, of course, he gets her to gaze upon the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she sees it as a delight. He, he gets her eye towards it, and that's where the temptation comes in. We must govern our eyes. We must govern our ears. Well, the fall was a great victory for Satan, but notice the emphasis back in that paragraph. This sin God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit. God was not pleased with it. He was pleased to permit it for his own glory. Uh, although Satan w- won his day in the fall, it does not mean that, that he's equal to God. He did not actually thwart God, even in thwarting God's purpose. There is no dualistic worldview where there's evil and good locked in battle together and who's going to win. No, no, God is sovereign. God is sovereign even over the fall. Chad Van Dixhorn says, The fall was a shocking event to us, but it was not to God. He allowed our first parents to sin because he was going to work it all to his own glory. Even the fall is, according to the eternal counsel of God, his eternal decree to the praise of his glory. Well, let's look at paragraph two, the consequences of sin. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. So what happened when they fall? What happened to Adam and Eve? What does sin do to us? Well, they were originally created righteous and holy in communion with God. And if you look at Genesis chapter 3, it's very clear that they lost that. No sooner do they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good. By the way, Eve eats of it, and then she gives it to Adam. 
And when Adam eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we, we tend to think of it as an apple, by the way. All you apple users, that's what that apple bite means. You secular humans. I'm an android person, so I'm going to be legalistically self-righteous about it. But the... Uh, uh, but uh, Adam eats this apple, as it were, with, with her dental profile in it. And they both fall together in this rebellion, this engineered rebellion against God. And what happens? Well, immediately we're told they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they're afraid of him. There's an alienation with God. Sin separates us from God. There's an alienation. They're alienated from themselves and they, they cover themselves with fig leaves. We are the only species that wears clothing. You know, my dog is, he's furry, but he's never had clothing on. We have, we're, we're guilty. And, the, and, the, and that, that guilt changes us. Uh, and we're separated from God. Van Dixhorn says, having given their ears to Satan, they could no longer hear their God without fear. Secondly, now we become dead in sin. And so man dies spiritually. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins uh, with respect to God. We are, we, 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 a, and we'll talk, for further paragraphs talk about this. We'll flesh this out. But we become unresponsive to God. Donald Ray Barnhouse gave the analogy of a radio. Uh, and radios have frequencies. And he says, imagine a radio that uh, a certain band of its frequencies have burned out. And the station is still transmitting them. But that radio no longer has the capacity to receive those frequencies. It is dead to those frequencies. And likewise, man becomes dead to the voice of God and to the word of God because of sin. And not only that, but we're going to suffer actual death. Uh, God said, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You go, well, they actually died a thousand years later. Well, they did suffer bodily death. But spiritual death is a more substantial death. It's, a, it's, it's not so bad to die and go to heaven. What's terrible is to become spiritually dead. And that, that, they experience that the very, that's what sin does. It works death into us. So they, bodily death, spiritual death, eternal death. And then they became wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. I reference Romans 3, 10 to 18. You can go back and, and read that. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, this is total depravity. They, every faculty, they're, they're thinking. You know, After the fall, there's a, a sinfulness to their thinking. Their desiring is corrupted. Their will is corrupted. Their desires are corrupted. And Paul deals with that in Romans 3, 10 to 18. Well, paragraphs 3 and 4 of chapter 6 deal with the very important doctrine of original sin. And they say this, They being the root of all mankind, Adam and Eve, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. So the guilt and corruption of their sin is imputed and conveyed to all their offspring. That would be y'all and me. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed 
all actual transgressions. Let's look at that. Well, first of all, Adam was the, rep- was the covenant representative of the entire human race. Now, he's actually the, the, the biological fountain of the human race. God creates Adam. He makes the woman out of Adam, hence man, woman. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's ish, isha. Even the language shows the derivation of woman from the man. It's not an inferiority, but it's an order. And then all their children are all of them. Adam is the origin of our race. You and I were in Adam. Uh, God looks at you and he goes, where have I seen that face? It's that Adam guy. And we, we are, you go, well, it's a lot of generations. But, you know, you'll see someone. I'm getting old enough now. I'll see someone. I go, you're the spitting image of your grandmother. Oh, you, look, you just look just like you. I, I'm not up to great-grandchildren yet, but uh, I'm grandparents, I can go, oh, oh, you just look just like your granddad. Oh, your mannerisms. You know, I remember one time my father had died, and, and he had a brother who he never really got along with, so we weren't close to him. But uh, I was really grieving my father, and I was, I, I was visiting my mother, and my uncle showed up. And he, he sort of looked like my father, but it was just the mannerisms. It was the tone of his, there was a, a quality of him that was so close to my father, I was mesmerized by him. Well, God sees you and he goes, Adam. And you and I were in Adam. Uh, but not only were we biologically in Adam, uh, we, God established Adam under the covenant of works as the one whose success or failure, whose obedience or sin would stand for the entire human race. This is what the Bible teaches. And so when Adam falls and becomes guilty, the guilt of Adam is imputed to all his offspring. Now that is a doctrine that probably most evangelicals do not accept, and they don't accept it because it doesn't seem fair. Why should I be guilty from the moment I'm born? The, the, What this doctrine says is that these little children in the wombs of their mother in our church are guilty. You go, how can they be guilty? They haven't done anything. They're guilty because the sin of Adam is imputed to them. Where does the Bible teach that? And the answer is Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and death spread to all men, and I have it italics because the I cannot find it. You cannot find an English translation that gets this right. The, the Greek is F-O. In that all sinned. And what Paul, the, the broader argument he's making is, he says, how come, people, how come people prior to Moses died when it's, God doesn't publish the, the, the law of God, the Ten Commandments and, and the punishment of death for sin? He doesn't publish that until Moses comes along. So prior to Moses, why were people dying when the law stipulating it didn't come till later? And his argument is, oh no, God stipulated it to Adam. And they, people been, you know, people have been dying all these centuries. The reason they suffered death is not merely because God had told Adam, but because in that they sinned when Adam sinned. When Adam sinned, I sinned. Why? Because Adam was my covenant head. If the nation of if America signs a treaty with Uzbekistan and, uh, and uh, the events happen that trigger a war in Uzbekistan and your children get drafted to go into Uzbekistan, you will say, I never signed an agreement with Uzbekistan. 
Well, your government's going to say this is a federal government, federal being the Latin word for covenant. Theodos is the Latin word for covenant. And when the ambassador of the United States signed the treaty with Uzbekistan, you signed it. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Because this is a covenant nation. This is a Theodos federal nation. And, and that's the way the Bible set up uh, the matters of guilt and salvation. Now, it's going to turn out to be very much for our benefit. When Adam sinned, you sinned. He represented you. And you and I inherit the imputation of Adam's guilt. Now, you're going to add your own. I know that. But the human race is guilty through Adam. When Adam sinned, we sinned. We suffer the punishment of death via Adam's guilt, which is imputed to us. But, so the one part of original sin is, or is, is imputed guilt. The other part is inherited corruption. And so human nature was polluted, and guess where we get our nature? I got my nature through David Margaret Phillips, and they got their natures from their parents, and they got their name, and it all goes back to Adam and Eve. By the way, this does explain the virgin birth. At least it partly explains the virgin birth. The other part was he needed a divine nature. It was the eternal Son of God taking up a human nature, but it's by means of the Holy Spirit in the, in the, in the uh, 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 conception of Jesus that he is the exception to that situation. And so original sin means that every single human being is born in this world by ordinary generation's birth with two big sin problems, guilt and corruption. They come into the world sinners and they come into the world guilty. This is why Jeremiah says, "My heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now the upshot of this is spiritual inability. This is the problem. The problem is not just that we're guilty, not just that we are corrupted, we like the wrong things, we, we think the wrong things, we're, we're prone to all these things, we, we will the wrong things. Moreover, we lack the ability to respond to God. By the way, this is why we rely on supernatural means of conversion. The whole notion that if we can just get the persuasion right, we can get people to choose Jesus. So if I put enough emotional pressure on you by having uh, uh, Verlin lead just as I am for the 42nd time, and, you know, if it's summer camp in your youth, we're going to starve you and, and sleep deprive you, and, and, and we're going to, and it's all with goodwill, but this belief that we can create the environment in which we can compel or persuade you, no, you cannot. Why? Because they are not able to believe. That, that's the upshot of it. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the Spirit does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Now, we know that. They think it's stupid. It's the last thing they want to hear, but it doesn't stop there. And he is not able to, because it is spiritually discerned. That, that should be a capital S. It's Holy Spirit discerned. So until there's a supernatural work of God, to bring life to that which is dead, no one can be saved. Now, again, that's why we rely on the word of God in prayer. Because what does Peter say? You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. God has invested saving power in his word by the power of the Holy Spirit when he converts people. It is the only way anyone is ever saved. Now, there's a huge amount of variety in how that works out. 
Every one of us has got a completely unique conversion story, and all our conversion stories are essentially the same. The Word of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, brought me who was dead to life. But here's the problem. They are dead. And that's why we, we focus our ministry on the Word of God. Ephesians 2, 1 says, you are dead in your trespasses. Not that you are sick in your trespasses. People say, you're, you know, you're like a man overboard and you need a life raft. You need a, li- a life boy. Well, the problem is I'm actually a corpse floating on the water and the life boy will bounce off my head and just lay in the water next to me unless there's a resurrection that's performed by God. John six forty four, Jesus says, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who, who sent me compels, the word means drags him, brings him. Uh, well, that's a big problem. Every single person, by the way, and you see how this informs our whole approach to child raising, to evangelism, to Christian nurture, we are relying completely on supernatural means to which God has attached promises because the problem is this bad. And by the way, it also makes you wise as parents. It's not just your children who need to be spanked four, five, seven times during the day. You know, some of the, we, some of the mothers with small children, the rest of us remember it well. And then you pray and you persist. But sin is a massive issue in the lives. They are not little angels, except for uh, Olivia's and and Aaron's children. But that's with two L's. (laughs) They're little angels. But uh, my daughters babysit them, and they they love them. But the it it stops at the name. Right? We're all we're all sinners. All right. Uh, It results in enmity. There's a more than that. It's a positive enmity towards God. You go, if we feel like, Pastor, our culture hates God. Well, that's because it does. There's an enmity. Listen to Romans 8, 7 to 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. By the way, the mind set on the flesh is not really bad people. It's all people. He means everybody. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, by the way, we don't deny that there are what you and I would call good things. There are totally depraved people who do good things, and they should be, we should call them good. But we know they're not actually good. They're not meritoriously good. A good deed done in rebellion to God is an evil deed. Uh, they cannot please God, and, and they don't want to. And so the confession says, we therefore are constituted sinners. Um, From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. We are not sinners because we sin. We are sinners because Adam sinned. We sin because we are sinners. Now, it's true in Adam's case. He became a sinner because he sinned. But once that was done, we sin because we are sinners. And the confession says we are utterly, this is our pre-regenerate state, we are utterly indisposed, utterly disabled, made opposite to all good, wholly inclined to all evil. Now that can be wrapped in a, you know, you can take someone who's just the most polite person, who's respectful, 
and does good things all his life, and it's equally true of that person. It's just been socialized a certain way. They just were raised in a certain reward structure. Uh, but it's, it's rebellion to God. And there's a pride attached to it. And there's, a, there's all kinds of sin attached to it. We are indisposed, disabled, and opposed to what is true good. Now here's the great thing, though. By this arrangement, whereby God constituted and appointed Adam as our federal head, so that his obedience or disobedience, his success or failure, would determine the eternal destiny of all who are all his progeny. You go, what a bad deal. Actually, it's not a bad deal. Uh, Adam, I'd rather have Adam stand for me than me. Uh, Adam has a much better chance than I do. Adam didn't have a corrupt nature, and I do. But God, in his eternal counsel, was structuring his relationships in such a way, Romans 5.14 calls Adam a type of the one to come, the tupas of the one to come. Because the way that we're going to be saved is the exact same structure. What does God offer you in the gospel? He offers the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, and now he will be your covenant head. When you believe in Jesus, why are you saved? Because Jesus fulfills the covenant of works for you. Because now it is Jesus who stands for you. And Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He obeyed God every second of his entire life until he died. And he fulfilled the terms of the covenant. I will go to heaven by works alone. Works performed on my behalf by the Son of God who was incarnate in order to become the mediatorial second Adam. And it's his works that why do we say I'm saved by faith? I'm saved by faith in him so that I'm saved by his works. And so God, as it were, nailed our hands to Adam so that he could then nail, take our hands off of Adam and he nailed them to Christ. And here, look what he says in Romans 5, 8, 19. Actually, Romans 5, 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. It's actually, I would say, declared sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so God has orchid. Why did God permit the fall? So that he could bring his people together in Christ. So that Christ could be the mediatorial head of the covenant of grace. And through faith in Jesus, uh, how did uh, William Perkins, the old Puritan, he said Adam had a belt, and on his belt was hanging the entire human race. And that belt, and, and they're going to eternal doom. But God in his grace, he takes you off of Adam's belt, and he puts you on the belt of the second Adam, who came to rescue the elect from, that, from the fall. And now, by Christ our covenant head, we are saved. Well, let's talk about sin and, and believers, sin and regeneration. Paragraph 5. The corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions therefore thereof are truly and properly sin. Let's look at that statement. Well, first of all, you are still a sinner. You know, people will say, oh, I'm, I'm not a sinner anymore, I'm saved. And what does John say? If we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. I mean, we're really deceiving. But you're not deceiving anybody else, I'll tell you that. You know, John Wesley, the great evangelist, taught the doctrine of Christian perfectionism. 
that we, by grace through faith, can be made perfect in this life. And literally, I'm not making this up, while he would be preaching it, his wife, from whom he was estranged, because of his not technically adulterous, but he, he had relationships with women that none of you women would permit your husband to have. Let me just say that. And she, his wife was literally working the crowd over reading love letters between John Wesley and, and these women who were his followers while he's preaching perfection. You're just going, dude, dude, stop it. Stop preaching perfectionism. We're not, why can't we ever be perfect in this life? Because I still have the old man. Because in this life, I'm dealing with this this mysterious situation. I don't have two natures, but I have, at the one hand, I am redeemed and delivered. On the other hand, I'm still dragging around the old man. That's why the Bible's going to say, put off the old man. Put on the new, right? Now, if, if, if I didn't have indwelling sin, you would not tell me to put off the old if, if regeneration did put an end to my sin nature, then I would not be told to mortify my flesh. So the Bible's very clear that uh, Paul says in Philippians 3, 2, I am not yet perfect. You would think that verse would do it. First John 1, 8 again, if we save without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, no, if you're born again, and it's something of a letdown sometimes when you're an adult convert, because you kind of, you suddenly realize you're the same, on the summers, you're totally new, and you're the same old guy. And it's a little scary. Oh, I thought I was born again. Well, you are born again. You've been made alive. That's why Calvin called regeneration vivification. It's the coming to life of that which was dead. But we still are dealing with the corrupt nature inherited from Adam. Uh, yes, through Christ, our corrupt nature is both pardoned and mortified, but our sin is sin. So none of this notion, I'm a saint now, not a sinner. No, you're a sinner who is a saint. A saint is a holy one. You've been declared holy. You've been made holy. You're pursuing holiness. You one day will be perfectly holy. But right now, you are a sinner who has been redeemed, who will be redeemed, and who's in the process of being redeemed. That's always going on. Now, this deals, therefore, there's a statement here that's very helpful. Uh... My pointer is not working tonight. That's the problem. Uh, okay, there we go. Um, it, the sin itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. Now, the Roman Catholic Church came along with its doctrine of concupiscence. If I used that word to you before, everybody say concupiscence. You are now a Reformed theologian. The... Uh, Concupiscence is my pre-volitional sin orientation. So I, I have a, it, it's my propensity to sin prior to me wanting to do it. Now, in, in our time, it, it's a broad topic, although it's often used with respect to sexual sin. Uh, there's a big debate in the PCA today about same-sex attraction. And, the, and we're grateful for people who struggle with same-sex attraction if they have not yielded to it, if they've not practiced it. We're, we're glad people who, are, who, who have a desire. I, I will tell you right now, i got a lot of sin temptations. Same-sex is not one of them. <laughs> it's never crossed my mind in 61 years. I, I think I'm good the rest of my life. But there may be some of you, maybe others out there, struggle with this. But the question is, is the, is the possession 
of an orientation that I'm not even acting on, whether I act on it or not, is the orientation itself sin. Uh, maybe it's uh, some people will say, yeah, we, I have a predisposition to alcoholism. I have a predisposition to this or that. You have my sinful behaviors. You have my sinful desires and actions. But beneath that, there is a, a tendency, an orientation to sin. Roman Catholicism says that is not sin. And that it has to do with their sacramentology. And people today in the PCA are saying, if I'm same-sex attracted and I'm not acting upon it, then that's okay. I'm not sinning. And I, 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 I can remain gay in Christ. I, I'm using this. This is the way the issue is coming out today. This is the, the confessional doctrine. But it's very important. And so if we have someone, for instance, who says, look, all my life I discovered early in life that I was attracted to men. And I, you know, I've, it's been a bummer and I've been struggling with all my life, but I can't change who I am. Uh, can I just be a gay Christian? Well, there's a problem with that. Uh, one is we're not to identify ourselves with our sin tendencies. Uh, you take a guy maybe who was raised in a certain family from the time he first started thinking, he, all he heard was racism. And he never chose to be a racist. He just was raised in the midst of racism. It's hardwired. Does he need to repent of his racism? Yes, he does. And we would never accept someone to say, I'm a racist Christian. You know, I was raised this way. It's in, we wouldn't accept that. And so if, to the extent that we have pre-volitional sin orientations, the Bible and Reformed theology says it is sin. You are to mortify and repent of it. Going back to the, the very hot button and, and pastorally important issue today of same-sex attracted. What would the Bible tell someone who, who has a homosexual desires and beneath that they, they have a, a self-identification? That they are to be forgiven of all their sins through faith in Christ and they are to mortify all sin. They are to, sometimes you starve sin. And it may be a, a, a hard, lifelong process, but we are never to make peace with our sin, no matter what kind it is. And even if you say, well, I, I, I'm not choosing, I never, I never chose to be this way, therefore it can't be sin. That was actually one of our presbyteries declared that. Because they didn't choose to be that way, therefore it's not sin. They don't have to repent of it, mortify it. The Bible knows nothing of that. All sin, and, and we're all, by the way, I, I use the same-sex attracted one today because that's the one where the, the hot button is. But you start adding in the various sin tendencies, we're all in the same boat. There are ways that I am that I didn't choose to be. There are ways that you are that you didn't choose to be. And we have been redeemed, we've been brought into Christ, we've been forgiven, and everything that is, is a sin in us that's not in conformity to God's will, we are to repent of, and we are to actively be mortifying. Why? Because all sin and all the, that's what the confession says, all the operations, therefore, are sin. They are sin. Listen to James in James 1, 13 to 15. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And then you have this very sophisticated statement here. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, what is that desire? It is his corrupt nature. Why does sin work with you? Why does sin work with me? 
Now, thankfully, it doesn't always do so. We grow strong, and the Lord gives us grace. But when it works, why does it work? Because I have a predisposition to sin. And maybe your predisposition to sin looks a little different from my predisposition to sin. There's all kinds of individuals. Maybe it's our DNA, whatever it is. We, that is not never an excuse to sin. And we are to be actively mortifying, starving that which is sin. And we're to be promoting, a, yes, against, you go, you're having me war against my own nature. That's the very language Paul use, uses. I, I beat my body, he says. It's not some weird, you know, uh, uh, monkish ritual. He's talking about, I'm at war with this corrupt nature that I carry around with me by the grace of God. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The, 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 your and my practical sin problem is original sin, a corrupted nature, it's a pre, this is what concupiscence is. It's the pre, I, I didn't choose to, 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 whatever it is. I didn't choose this set of desires. Yes, but you're to mortify it. You're to war against the sin that's in your flesh. Finally, guilt and punishment. Every sin, both original and actual, so Adam's sin, of which you are guilty in Adam, And then your own sins, of which you only are guilty, being a transgression of the righteous law of God, and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner. Now, we're living in a society that doesn't believe in guilt. And what what, what a mess we make of the human race when you take away the fact that we have an actual guilt problem. Uh, No, the Bible says, no, the reason we feel guilty is because we are guilty. That's the thing. And sins bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God, the curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all misery, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Let's work that out a little bit. You and I are guilty of Adam's sin and our own. Adam's sin would be enough. Uh, We are guilty of our own. All sin brings guilt and deserves punishment. We are all objectively guilty. And we deserve, so we go, I didn't deserve, you know, you ever notice the deserve language that's around? I deserve a better car. Every time I hear that, I'm going, you deserve hell, but I I don't want to be Mr. Reformed Theologian 24-7. You know, uh, we don't, what we deserve is hell. It's the only thing we deserve. What makes sin sinful is transgression to God. And so our society says, you know, we're not hurting anybody. To consenting adults, it's not sin because it's not hurting anybody. It's hurting God. It's an offense to God. It's warfare against God. What makes sin, sin? In fact, the most sinful thing about every sin is that it's a transgression of God. When David does, has his sin with Bathsheba and then he murders Uriah, what does he say in Psalm 51? Against you, you only have I sinned. David's not saying, I, he, he knows he's sinned against them. What he's saying is, but the, the thing that overwhelms everything is that it was against you. And so what makes sin so sinful and wicked is the transgression of God and all that that means against God. Uh, and death is caused by sin. We die because of sin. Now, you know, does that mean that 
every person dies, you know, this person committed this sin, so they die. No, unless Jesus comes back, we are all going to die. We, we are in an entire race. And here's what's happening in America today. We have this conspiracy never to talk about death. Never to mention death. In fact, now we don't even use death. It's now passed away. I'm not totally opposed to saying pass away, but it's a, the word, the D word, isn't used in our culture anymore. Because we have no, we're going to, we're engaged in pretending. We don't talk about sin because sin and death go together. But the Christian needs to say, we are, I'm going to die. Why do I have to die? Because of Adam's sin and mine. And, and it reminds us that sin is the issue. Sin is the problem. Death is caused by sin. But, but we, we have spiritual punishment. Ephesians 4.18. Paul talks about us being darkened in our understanding. Our, our, don't you get tired of your sin sometimes? And, and, and your tendency, your, your whatever it is, boastfulness or sloth or, or lust, whatever, whatever it is. Don't you get sick of it? I hope we're getting sick of our sin. But there's spiritual sin. There's temporal sin. You know, people say, God has to explain why this world is as it is. God did explain it in Genesis chapter 3. The reason this world is the way it is is because of the fall of Adam and Eve. And, you know, I like to say, people say, God's got a lot to answer for. And I'm like, uh, you have it exactly backward. Exactly, you know, the old thing, whenever you're pointing a finger at somebody else, three fingers are pointing back at you. That's the grand example of it. No, no, no. The temporal effects of sin, but then the eternal effects. And in this way, see, here, here's how we set the equation. The Bible sets up the equation. When sin is the problem, and it is, that's the truth, it's the reality. The only answer is Jesus Christ. When the problem is the fall, of, what, can, what can you and I do about the fall of Adam? Nada. I can't do anything about great, 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 great granddad Adam. Thanks. No, no, except but God has done what I cannot do. He sent his son to be the second Adam, the mediator between God and man, the God-man. Why did he become man? Because man owed the debt, and he paid it as man. Why did it need to be God? Because the debt was so great, only God could pay it. And so this is, this is the, Christian, the Christmas message. The eternal son of God took up a human nature. He, I love the line of the, the Nicene Creed, puts it so well. And was made man. That's what the incarnation was. Why? That we would be redeemed from the curse. You know, the greatest gift you and I will ever receive, and I know it sounds like the standard Christian thing, but it's just so true, is that when this is what we deserved, God sent his son. And he, he, he took up our cause. And he, he said, where Adam failed, I'm going to succeed. By, by, by one man's disobedience, all transgressed by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. The essential structure of redemptive history, a biblical understanding of the fall. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you for truth. We would never work our way towards this ourselves, but you tell us. You tell us what happened long ago and what are the implications thereof and how it, is it what's going on in my life and in, and in our lives. But Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us there. You loved us even so. And though, though your wrath burned against our sin, the sin of our race, the sin of ourselves, you loved us, you sent Jesus, that we might have a new Adam. We would be taken out of Adam and into Christ. 
We thank you for our faith. We thank you for his blood. Lord, we thank you for his Holy Spirit. And Lord, would you, would you keep us from making compromises with excuses that I, would, God, God, I was made this way. I can't help it. Lord, it's true that we are awash in sin and sin is greater than we are, but Christ is greater still. So let us cling to Christ and his grace, your grace in and through him, that we might deliver not only from the guilt of sin. Oh, thank you that we are delivered from the guilt of our sin. But we pray, O oh Lord, that day by day we would be delivered from the power of our sin, that we would less and less each day that we would live in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.